advanced technologies, political corruption, the rise of fascism, end time prophecy. That's a mouthful. And we'll talk about all of that and more on this episode of Mind Dog TV Podcast. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact checking and corrections are encouraged. This episode is brought to you by Fundwise Capital. Fundwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals. Connect with Fundwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. we got an interesting show for you tonight. Uh, I'll meet the author uh, segment, uh, and we're going to talk about all those things I mentioned in the opening. It was a mouthful, I know. Artificial intelligence is one I, I forgot, but it's part that falls into advanced technologies, I guess. Political corruption, rising fascism, end-time prophecy, and more. You know, my wife was... Uh, just talk to me because we are in New York where I am. We are experiencing, uh, I don't know how to say it, brown skies, brown skies. And that smell like chemical fires, not like wildfires it's coming from the wildfires in Canada. But she said to me, you know, it wasn't this bad when we had, when Long Island was burning, Long Island was burning a couple of times, 11 years ago today, uh, our area was on fire and it was pretty bad. And, but the smoke and, and, you know, cover wasn't as bad as this. Uh, and 30 years ago or so, 1996, we burned for the entire summer. And it wasn't as bad as what we've experienced the last two days. So my wife says, you know, it's something else is going on. And she's, she's very um, tuned into conspiracy theories and things like that. And she said, people are talking about the end times and end time prophecy and all this stuff. So it'd be interesting to have this conversation tonight. Uh, Guy Morris uh, is retired from a 36-year 
uh, executive career with uh, Fortune 100 Software, High Tech, and Global Energy. He has also pub- published. He has been a published songwriter for Disney Records. Now, I didn't even know Disney had a record company. Uh, shame on me for not knowing that. Uh, patented an inventor, a Coast Guard charter captain, an adventurer, and now self-published author of thrillers from cartel death threats in Latin America uh, to shock diving in uh, Moria, uh, from boardroom to recording studio, from child of homeless childhood homelessness to corporate jets. Guy pulls from a rich life of diverse experience to write books that thrill, educate, and inspire. Uh, thoughtful dialogue on genuine issues facing humanity. And ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Guy Morris to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Guy, welcome. Thank you, sir. Very gracious intro. Thank you so much. Uh, it was my pleasure to have you here. Now, uh, uh, let's let, let me just start by uh, back childhood homelessness. Uh, you know, homelessness. Mm. How? Not the entire <laughs> child. Not your entire childhood, I'm hoping. Just uh, no. I I I was a homeless runaway at age 13. Uh, I was gone for several months, uh, working alongside uh, migrant workers to get enough money to eat and survive. Um, I ultimately went home long enough at sometime around age 14 to get a GED, and then left for good at age 15, um, and and basically been providing for myself ever since. So I've essentially been self-providing since I was in my uh, 12, 13 years old. I'm smiling because you just told my bio now, but the problem I have is somewhere along the line I had that same. I I ran. I was a runaway. Uh, at 14, went and worked uh, with migrant workers picking oranges in Florida to survive, mm-hmm. put myself through high school and, and then college. But at some point, our uh, paths go in different directions. Yours towards the one of great success and all this stuff. <laughs> and me, uh, just a uh, rock and roll bum. But uh, <laughs> and, and, and you probably, it might help you to know that there are a lot of times sitting in that office till 11 o'clock at night thinking, man, I should have just been a rock and roll bum. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. That's good to know. Uh, it's the quality. It's not the quantity. Yeah. So now, uh, I, mean, I know I apologize to go back into personal history, but I think it's important to get to know who you are before we talk about these books and, and their impact on, you know, modern dialogue about what we're really dealing with in, in the world and all this stuff. So what did you know what you wanted to do as you, as you were a young man working on migrants and all that stuff or has your, I wanted to be a rock and rap point. I wanted to be a rock and roll bum. Um, uh, but I, I, a, a few events that, that uh, in often I only can describe as miracles basically, gave me an opportunity to go to college. Even though I was functionally illiterate, I'd never taken SAT scores. Uh, They let me in even though I was 28 units deficient from the minimum requirements. They said, we'll let you make it up. It was one of those impossible odds. And I bent over backwards working day and night to both go to school and also provide for my family. I was already married and had a daughter at the time. Uh, but that transformed my life. That was what I said. That I felt at the time, I said, and, and I didn't know how to phrase it until years later when a, a movie called The Knight's Tale came out, but I wanted to be able to change my stars. Interesting. And, um, university was allowed to do that. Now, I started off really struggling. By the time I graduated, my, my undergrad, I had multiple degrees. I was on the top of the dean's list. 
I had been offered a full scholarship to go to stay at that school for grad school and was even accepted into Harvard um, because I had designed a uh, macroeconomic model which produced, you know, predicts things like the GNP and interest rates and unemployment. But I had designed a macroeconomic model that outperformed the Federal Reserve and virtually every other university and bank in the country. Um, based on a new theory that I had developed tying um, productivity gains accelerators to technology sales. Wow. Now, did, did the financial uh, um, institutes, institutions uh, adopt your model and start using it? The, oh, absolutely. I, if you remember uh, for years in the um, uh, 80s and 90s, um, Volcker and, and a, a couple of the others kept talking about the productivity that the the economy was doing so good because of the productivity of technology. And, and so it, it actually changed how they actually did their modeling. Wow. So uh, at some at some point now you you talk about uh, wanting to be a uh, rock and roll bomb at the start of it, but at you know during all these pursuits and, and you're getting this education, when did you ever? Because and you said functional literate too, so I'm thinking you probably weren't a, a writer or a journal keeper even as a young person. When did the the bug for wanting to be a writer and uh, a novelist? Uh, start to hit that me. probably started actually a little bit in college. Now I never read as a kid um, or or in high school because I really barely went to high school, and so when I had to start reading literary classics, including things like Tom Sawyer and Moby Dick, and I started getting into actually being able to read these stories, uh, I found that I actually loved um, the the process, the the ability for somebody to take you into a new world like a movie but in your head and um but in my career i rarely ever got a chance to read for pleasure because 16 18 hours a day 80 100 hours a week you're you're processing information right. and when you do get off it i was usually usually trying to find some other kind of creative outlet to balance all that out so it was either writing songs or being in a band or recording or diving or something else yeah. Um, but my, when my son was about 11 or 12, he was also very, um, he loved to read and would go through two or three books at night. I was a single parent, but I had lots of computers and, and I had computer time. So I wrote him a book called, it was only a short book, maybe a hundred pages called Paolo and the Shark. And he loved it. He gave it to his cousins. They loved it. And a few years later, I started to write a sequel um, called The Curse of Cortez. But when I started doing the research for that book, it took me well over a decade to do the research for that book. And by the time I was done, he, well, he was he was grown and gone. And so it eventually evolved into my novel, The Curse of Cortez. Why uh, why so extensive in, in the research? What, what, what? I have I have this. I'll call it a problem <laughs> where I something will capture my imagination or my curiosity or I will in my head I think I can solve that or in my head I think why is that happening I'm uh, it's, it, it's not it's it's the whole monk thing you walk into a room you say something's not right here and you can't let it go but um 
I had stumbled onto, I was looking up real history to base the, his book on, and I stumbled onto the real history of 1672 when Henry Morgan um, raided the city of Panama. He took 2,000 men, 36 ships, lost half the men in the venture, but he ultimately brought back over 30 tons, over uh, probably a billion to a billion and a half dollars of plunder, and six, 500, 600 slaves uh, uh, um, out, out of Panama. But when he got back to his fleet, he cheated everybody, and he disappeared with everything on three ships that were never seen again. But months, four months later, uh, Morgan actually showed up in Jamaica. He probably would have been killed by his men, except the British arrested him immediately and sent him to England, where they thought he was a hero because he broke the financial back of the Spanish. So they make him Sir Henry Morgan. They send him back to Jamaica with a whole garrison of soldiers and lieutenant governor. But instead of going back to the plunder, he knew where it was because he got back with a, with a ship. He actually made it back, and, and it's just that the ship was empty. So he stored it someplace. But instead of going back for his billion-dollar plunder, he slipped into this haunted, drunken debauchery and then burned his logbooks before he died. Three years after he died, the whole city of Port Real sank into the ocean, including his grave. At the time, many of the locals had cursed by Morgan. Now, that's all 100% factual history but it just captured my imagination. What could cause a man, first off, what happened to 30 tons of stuff, three ships and 500 bodies? Yeah, that is first off. Something, <laughs> somebody's found something of that in the 350 years since. And in fact, I believe somebody did, a guy named F.A. Mitchell Hedges in 1911, who was digging on this one island off of Honduras and Belize for seven years before he claimed he had found Atlantis and then three months later disappeared with roughly $250 million of today's dollars in gold. Wow. When they asked him how he got the gold, which had, by the time he got to New York had been resmelted, so he wanted to hide the origins of it, he basically lied to them and told him some story about how he was digging, walking in the, on the beach and his compass went crazy, and so he dug in the sand and he found the gold until people told him that gold wasn't magnetic um, and wouldn't have affected his compass at all. And he basically went to England, he uh, bought a castle, he wrote his memoir, but he never would ever speak about how he found the gold on the island of Rowan. And did he have descendants or, or a state that he left the... Uh, he didn't have any... His a descendant was a, uh, a girl that he kind of pseudo-adopted. And she was the one who inherited, you know, that famous crystal skull that looks very lifelike, but it's totally, it's totally see-through and translucent. She was the one that got his inheritance, and that came part, part of his inheritance. Interesting. Uh, now, uh, if, legally... They at this point, she has full claim to that money, right? There's nothing, nothing anybody could do to kind of contest her. her Anytime her anything is found, as long as, if they can tie it in any way to Panama, Spain's going to try and make a claim. Right. Yeah. Uh, interesting. And so will the country you found it in, and everybody gets greedy when it comes to. Free now, Cap Captain Morgan is the rum Captain Morgan, right? He's the rum captain, but he's based <laughs> on a real-life guy. He was a ruthless, vicious, bloodthirsty, cunning. Weren't they, weren't they all? Yeah, pretty much. A lot yeah, of them. Yeah, pirates. But now, the reason that that occurs to me is that because the vodka is stored in, they, you know, the crystal skulls now is a big thing, but it's vodka, not rum. Yeah. There should be a rum brand for that. I, I, I think there's, <laughs> that you're probably right. The rum would really go, ho, ho, ho. Yeah. Um, 
But ultimately, what was really interesting about why it took me 10 years to research that story was the second mystery that I wanted to solve. What, what happened to Morgan? Once I had an idea of where it happened, and I could actually, I traced that, that history of that one island was amazing. Henry Morgan's uncle, Edward Morgan, had already conquered that island 30 years before and turned it into a raging pirate base. But it was actually more than one island. It was a chain of smaller islands. And so you couldn't necessarily see what was going on in some of the smaller islands from the big island. But Morgan knew that, that territory well. A hundred years before that, there was an Inquisition massacre that killed everybody in the island that ended a 2,000-year pilgrimage. When I researched the pilgrimage, it was connected somehow to the 5,000-year Mayan calendar. And then I ultimately figured out that the Mayan calendar pointed to the origins, the actual physical, real-world, geologic origins of the Mayan creation myth. It was wow. an amazing adventure that I had to go through so much history, through Inquisition, through all that, so all kinds of different things. I, I, it took me several years to figure out how I was going to turn all of that into sort of a modern-day action, Dan Brown sort of thriller. And in fact, Book Trip listed uh, The Curse of Cortez as one of their favorite 25 books of 2021, and they called it Indiana Jones meets Da Vinci Code. Right. Uh, somebody said, what if, uh, I said, somewhere on, I don't know if it was in reviews that I saw about your book, somebody said, imagine uh, Indiana Jones had the technical savvy of Elon Musk. And my, <laughs> my reaction to that because of, of what happened recently is, well, he probably wouldn't be able to run his own uh, stream on his own platform. Elon's not the genius engineer he tries to sell the world is. He's a, he was a rich guy to begin with who uh, inherited Emerald uh, mine money, um, and he had he has a good knack for finding great ideas and hiring good um, good genius technicians and working them to death. But he's always the, he's uh, always the one taking the, the credit. Right, he's um, an he's an entrepreneur. He's, he's not entrepreneur, he's not, not a technical not the genius. Yeah, right. Uh, and I think that you know. It, that seems like a trivial point, but it's important for people to grasp that because we we bestow upon him this technological genius uh, uh, idea, and then anything he says having to do with anything, people like think, well, it's like God speaking about yeah. about this and taking it. Like Einstein would would come down and and give you the uh, you know uh, re relativity. That's what we we think about. And, and then when the so-called geniuses make absolutely idiotic statements, you have to wonder, you know, who, who's selling who what. So right. I try to I discount that. And frankly, I, with IBM and with Oracle and Microsoft and, and with uh, some of the geologists at the oil company, um, I've worked with what I would consider true geniuses for decades. Right. And most of them aren't going to go out and basically tell you that they're a genius. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's definitely true. Now, because uh, Einstein, when asked about uh, how it feels to be the smartest man in the world, he said, "Ask Tesla." <laughs> uh, yeah, Tesla was not a very happy man. lived a very lonely life. Had a hard time communicating and 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 reasoning with others because he saw the world they couldn't imagine yet. Um, that that I, his a life of probably one of the most amazing geniuses of the last century, and yet it was full of tragedy. It was His lab is right outside this window. 
Oh, wow. Well, that's an honor. That's cool. <laughs> I, I went in there when it was closed down. I haven't been there. It's opened up as a Tesla Science Center now. Yeah. But aside from that, now let's get back to this book because we got a lot to talk about. And I, but oh, yeah. This, first of all, my... I have a problem with historical fiction in that when I, as a reader, when I read it, I forget that it, the, the fix, that there's fictional parts in it. And I accept everything as, you know, complete nonfiction and, and this is the way, way it happened. And then I will find myself getting into arguments with people about history and getting it wrong. And then, no, nah, I read it. I'm sure I, I read that. it. I get that, which is one of the reasons, um, and I agree with you. So if you go to my website, um, there I have a couple of pages worth of fact versus fiction versus folklore having to do with Cortez. So it's it's I, I can be transparent with saying, okay, this is true, this is true, this is true. This is just folklore. We don't know for sure. And this part, oh, I just made that up. Right. So um, I, I think a good story doesn't necessarily have to be constrained by only fiction or only fact. I think that merging um, factual foundations with any good fiction raises the sense of plausibility and authenticity. As long as you're not smearing somebody or doing something like that, but bringing in actual historic events and places in history, I think enriches for me, enriches the story a lot. So I, I try to do that with my books quite a bit. I, I agree on that point, but personality-wise, there are people like me who just forget. You just forget that some of this is fiction, and then you're reading it and thinking and you're like reading textbook. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it becomes that. So uh, that's it. So now you have all these. First of all, let me go back to the research. Did any of the research in, uh, require you go actually go into some of the? Uh, Places, the yes, and uh, actually, um, se several places I did. I talked to uh, even some Mayan shamans, um, and um, uh, one visit included um, I had a condo in Cancun and I was on a dive trip. So, actually, some of the characters in the book came from uh, some of the characters I met when I was researching and going through one of these adventures. One of them was I was going on a dive trip, and when I came in researching the road that was cut in the coral reef in, in Belize. Uh, when I got back, a, a, a thug uh, named Shea Golan. Now, the real Shea Golan was an Israeli fugitive who was wanted by Interpol, wanted by the FBI, who was doing dirty work for the Zeta cartel in Cancun. And instead of paying rent, he would basically um, break into Americans' condos and then threaten never to leave. And he, when I confronted him, he told me that if I messed with him, he'd kill me. Now... I was a street kid, so my first response without even thinking about it was to take two steps up so I could look him in the face and told him that I was going to be messing with him and that he had two days to get out of my condo or he would regret ever knowing me. And so after I messed with him in Cancun and ultimately cost him everything he had where he couldn't rent a, um, he couldn't rent a flea-ridden storage locker um, in that area, I put him in the book and messed with him again and I got my two-for in life. Wow! Wow! That is an interesting story in itself. Aside from the book, the 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 stories about how the books get written. So you you did ten years plus of of research. Now you have all this data. Because for me, I would be I'd be overloaded with information and in deciding how, now how do I. How do I put this into an interesting book form for people and, and keep it organized? That had to be a monumental challenge for you, no? That, 
It, it was in, in part because it was my first um, effort at making a real um, adult level um, a full length novel. And I, I, most of my career had been had been involved in communications, but they were one page executive fact sheets or they were 30 page uh, analysis reports or sales presentations or PowerPoint. It wasn't about the story arc and it wasn't about the character development. It wasn't about, and I, I knew in my head that I had an amazing story to tell, but I needed to get, um, I needed to do what I would have done in business, which is hire a consultant to come in and basically rip the project up and give me a, a blueprint on how to put it back together. And I did. I hired a uh, Simon & Schuster um, editor who uh, did work for them, who was also now working for as an editor for Amazon. I paid her a good amount of money to come in. I said, I just need you to, I said, I, I don't want you to worry about my feelings. I want to come out with something that's going to be an amazing product. And so, God help her, she, she, she did. She, uh, she gave me 44 pages of type notes. Plus, I think she marked up uh, virtually every single page in the manuscript at least once or twice. I, I got through the first going through of everything she had to say. My first thought was, oh, God, I suck. <laughs> but it was a really good learn. Once, once I got over the, um, the, the I suck part, I rolled up my sleeves. And I said, okay, let's figure out what she wants me to learn. Let's do it, and let's get this done. And, and as I said, it was... Um, uh, book trips of favorite 25 books of 2021 and another book was uh, it was also a finalist for cinematic book with screencraft that that's interesting uh, you bring up you know oh my god i suck now I, <laughs> that, I could understand that especially knowing that your your original interest as a teenager was was music and all and you have the artist sensibility and and that that definitely uh, reflects that, but it. Uh, what I was going to ask you next, and because this is not really something that the readers, perspective readers, care about, but perspective authors and people who uh, are in the business will care about, was the decision to be self-published, born in that uh, original round of criticism and knowing you're going to have to deal with a lot of rejection before you get accepted if you go the traditional publishing route, or, or was it something else, some other reason for you uh, to decide to go self-publish? It was a combination of a lot of things, uh, and I want to make sure we have time to get to the artificial intelligence stuff because I think there's some really interesting stuff that you're going to hear about there. But um, when I had um, finished, I actually wrote Curse of Cortez first and had was shopping it to agents and I got a service that says no no you got to write your letter this way to shop to agents and after about a hundred or so and I wasn't getting any response I was uh, I was rather than getting dejected I went ahead and I started writing Swarm uh, which was the espionage artificial intelligence series and now and that one had um, issues dealing with the 2020 election had issues dealing with uh, cyber espionage things that China's working on cyber weapons development that that DARPA's working on now this was four or five years ago I've been aware of these things and I can tell you I can go back to the reason why but everyone who was my beta readers and family were just like you know Agents are always looking for, agents do best when they're basically trying to say, I see a market for this square peg. I'm looking for authors that fit that square peg. Right. And agents don't do as well when they say, I see somebody who's really got to create a vision. I'm going to go find where he fits in the market because that's, 
they're just that's that's not how the revenue flows. Right. And so they're really trying to say the publisher wants these square things, and and you'll see a lot of if I were a uh, paranormal romance author, I, I would have been published years ago. Right. But I'm dealing with really deeply researched, highly intellectual, real things that are connecting people to the real world. And, and for some people find it fascinating and thought provoking. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that your average teenage girl or housewife is going to buy. Right. Now, uh, Derek Taylor, are you, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, there's absolutely parts of Derek Taylor that, that come from me. Um, he had a, a less than ideal childhood. He's, he uh, still deals with the PTSD and the traumas. Um, absolutely anti-violent, would rather outsmart somebody or just outsass them. Um, uh, but he's snarky and sarcastic and... and um, um, has a little bit of trouble with authority, but he always winds up, he ends up basically risking everything more than once to do the right thing, which kind of starts to find his character. Thank you. And for he does it in a way where he's like, nobody really should know that it was me. Thank you for acknowledging that. A lot of authors I talk about, because I do feel like every protagonist that uh, an, an author uh, creates is probably a a better version of themselves or an improved, you know, taking all the good parts of themselves and then adding more good qualities on top yeah. of that. And maybe a couple of extra flaws I don't have to own. <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. But it's it's surprising how so many get real uncomfortable when you bring that because you feel like, I, I, I don't know, I feel like they think I'm putting them on the spot. Like now we're going to think that, you know, it, it is an actual one-on-one -on -one uh, portrayal of you, and I, that's not what I'm getting at. But there are definitely elements because I think you have I, to. Right? I think yeah. rich characters for me, and uh, some of my favorite characters in my books either come from maybe maybe a little element of me, or certainly a a little element of me mixed with an element of um, somebody I know, mm -hmm. right? Their mannerisms, their their speech patterns, the way they would think, the way they would talk. Um, and, and so you're wanting to bring authenticity into those characters. And so you have to be willing to be a little bit transparent, even if you don't have, you don't really, you shouldn't have to say, Hey, I'm talking about me. Um, but you should understand what the character might have to be responding and bring some authenticity from those personal experiences. Very cool. I appreciate um, that. Now I, I wanted to, you mentioned a few minutes, the, um, the artificial intelligence. So. I, as part of my job through my career, I was, uh, I had developed a reputation of being a thought leader and an innovator, always innovating, usually at the leading edge um, of many technologies that are now commonplace, like uh, internet technologies and databases and computer modeling and even artificial intelligence back before it was called artificial intelligence. And... Um, and so as part of all that, I, I was reading a lot of literature, and sometimes you get these little tiny short stubs. And I, I stumbled on an Associated Press article that implied that, or didn't imply it, but basically it, it set out, outset it, said that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia. And if anyone knew something to contact this professor at the lab, we'll contact this FBI agent doing the investigation. And I stood there and I looked at it for several minutes. I cut it out. I taped it to my monitor. Uh, it didn't, I, I kept thinking, well, either somebody at the Associated Press made a big boo-boo. They should have said it was lost or stolen or did, it broke. Escaped. Um, 
or somebody at the lab made a big boo-boo by opening their fat mouth. I said, but that's really fascinating because if true, that implies the program had some level of intent, some level of intelligence, even though the intelligence might be as to where do I go next kind of thing. Some abil ability to move itself or move its core components and then the ability to erase the log trail so that the NSA didn't know where it was. Now, just to be clear, the, the Lawrence Livermore Labs are an NSA spy lab. So in my ears, I'm hearing the spy program has escaped the NSA and they don't know how to find it. Right. That's the only logical uh, you know, inference you can make from that statement. Absolutely. So I spent probably close to a year in my spare time. I was just captivated. Again, sometimes things will get in my head, working out, doing research and trying to ask my tech guys and thinking through all these problems. How does a spy program escape the NSA? And then once I figured that out, I spent a little bit more time saying, wow, that's really, really cool. I said, if I were James Bond Q or the NSA, what would I design it to do that it needed that really nifty capability? And then I took this to a friend of mine who is a film producer, and we produced a webisode series. We were hugely popular, seen all over the world. Um, people, um, major people at NASA were some of my uh, biggest fans who would write me every week. Uh, we got option by studio, and two weeks before the option was to come do, two FBI agents showed up at my door. Apparently, they were rather perturbed that I had uh, we figured out something they thought for sure was top secret, even though they wouldn't, wouldn't admit it. I would, my attitude was more like, yes, I did this. And they were like, no, this isn't funny, Mr. Morris. I said, you guys are wrong. This is hilarious. My wife came home about, this, about midway through, and she pulls me aside. She said, there's two FBI agents in my dining room. I know they're not here for a social call. What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that would be what I would get too. Yeah. What did what did you do? I hear that every time something goes wrong or something unexpected, the question comes to me: What did you do? I don't know. Let me pull up. Let me pull up the list of things I think you know about. The things I don't think I'll never. You hope you'll never know about. Right. So the swarm deals with real life, um, how artificial intelligence is seeping into um, intelligence, uh, cybersecurity, national security, weapons development, and how there's so much dark money and the, the uh, IP is already out there, the tools are out there. Uh, with chat GPT, we're even seeing malicious code being created. And what would, what would happen if we took all of the hacks from the last 10 years and China weaponized it uh, into an AIA virus? So I I start to present scenarios of, are we really, I'm asking the question, are we really prepared for the technologies that we're creating, uh, or, or how soon is it possible that this could get out of hand? That is the question, isn't it? It's still the question uh, several years later. Now, I, I, I forgot to mention to the audience at the beginning of the program that you were actually scheduled almost a year ago or about a year ago to be on the program. That same week, I had uh, Joshua Smith, who was a reverend but uh, wrote a book on um, AI. Stephen Schwartz, who spent his whole life in uh, AI but doesn't believe that AI is an actual uh, proper uh, description of what the technology is. And Mo Gaudet, who was the head of Google's AI research department, and you were supposed to be on that same week. Now, it's kind of fortuitous that, oh, I don't know, fortuitous, but um, maybe better to have you on now than then because 
the technology has changed and developed and, and really advanced quickly in the last year. And it seems like the whole world is about to be uh, revolutionized by this technology. Well, as a matter of fact, um, um, wasn't I think it was Morgan Chase, um, or uh, maybe, no, it might have been one of the other big banks, released a report about three years ago, or three years ago, three weeks ago, um, that as many as 300 million jobs could be lost or displaced between now and 2030 worldwide. Now, that's a level of job displacement that no economy, no government, no budget is really prepared to handle. Uh, and we're not really talking about, we're talking about the great things that AI can do. But one of the things I try to bring out and swarm in my other book series is some of the moral um, questions such as, um, uh, for the people who are spending tens of billions of dollars into artificial intelligence development, do we really think they're doing it for humanitarian purposes? Or are they doing it for greater profit potential, greater control over the populace, greater control over banking, greater control over the political process? What, so human, what, human are, the, nature, what are the real motives in, in spending that money? Human nature being what it is, and my inclination would be there's only one of those choices that is really uh, on the table, and that is greed and capitalism and self-power and, and all that stuff. I mean, So it uh, benefits some a tremendous amount. It'll benefit most people only to the extent they're willing to buy the service right but it leads into a lot of fear about what becomes do we become obsolete uh now be, before we get all, all into that i just want to give you some perspective on the other gentlemen that i mentioned who were on the program that week that he was supposed to be on joshua smith is a pastor who wrote a book about rights for AI and robots and all that mm -hmm. stuff as they become part of he, he he sees that they are going to need some manner of civil rights for robots <laughs> which right, I right. at the time he said that to me I was like this is just bizarre like that I mean I'm a, I consider myself you know open-minded to a lot of things but that seems like so far uh, you know, bleeding heart, not only caring about, you know, uh, that's more far left than I can even, I can even see from where I, I, I think we're, that, I think that's where that's a premature conversation as well. Um, the, there is the argument though, that once something becomes sentient, which is self-aware and, um, and, um, as intelligent as we are, we're basically a, a general intelligence, which we're actually within probably a few years of uh, at the current acceleration and there's some reasons why that i can get to um the question is would that kind of being be satisfied uh with that type of existence being able to perceive that we live in a different existence as that intelligence grows and as the power of it grows and the power of it will be always grow as it's connected to the world so it's connected to our, our internet of things it's connected to our devices our um uh, infrastructure Structure, our uh, our grading systems, our education systems, as we uh, defense systems, missile systems, as we start to integrate it. At what point does it um, decide um, that um, the optimum scenario is not one that we would choose? You know that that's an interesting. And I'll come back to that point. Maybe I should address it now before I go, because I, when you say that, I think about the Able Archers incident, where it was like the war games, the movie War Games, where uh, computers in Moscow were believing that we had launched the first strike and they, right. they were going crazy. And it took one man to say, "No, that's, that's the guy who actually built the system to say." 
no, that's absurd. That they wouldn't do that. Think about that right. before you re react. So you know that is a scary problem. But it's not only a plausible scenario. To give you an idea, the Rand Corporation. I think it was either 2019 or 2020. I'm, I'm, I can't remember. Uh, but uh, wrote a report for the DoD, and in that report, it one of the top ten um, security risks, national security risks, it considered AI data poisoning. So this is the idea that all AI rely on massive amounts, and we're talking trillions of bits of information. And, and in order for them to start seeing the patterns, in order for them essentially to mimic what humans are doing and, and, and learn how to do things. Uh, but AI have now become self-learning, which means it rewrite its own code. Uh, it can, and it can talk to other AI, and both in the code and in the conversations, it's doing it in ways that developers uh, don't really fully understand. So it's kind of developing its own language. Um, but it can also rewrite from scratch. And so it's developing in ways that we really don't exactly know how it's developing. Um, and so once you, we already know that they were using AI in all those functions. The second uh, top 10 security risk that the DOD was warned of by RAND was that there was a potential that with poison data, um, if you could cause an AI to malfunction and if that malfunction were an AI, not only could it malfunction, but AI is known to sometimes misinterpret things or produce false results. If that false result was an AI thinking that we were attacked by a missile, uh, faulty AI could lead to a, a false start of a world war. Wow. So those were actually listed, given to the DOD as two, just a couple of years ago, as two top 10 national security risks. See, this kind of uh, talk now, I, I, I don't think of myself as a total idiot, but when we talk, it, this stuff feels so far over my head. Now, I'm going to go back to the other two gentlemen I talked to, and they're uh, ca contradictory arguments. Stephen Schwartz, who had been in the field and taught, uh, taught it at university level, was of the uh, very strong opinion, and he lectured me a couple of times on like that there is no such thing as artificial intelligence. At, at, at some level, it's all programmed by man. And Mo Gaudet was of a completely opposite opinion, and he was of the opinion that not only is artificial intelligence truly intelligent, it's also to be feared, and at some point uh, we're going to end up like, uh, <clears throat> you know, Hal from 2001 Space Odyssey, where the computer is the boss and we're, we're taking... Uh, so... But the idea of, because you mentioned sometimes I, AI can get it wrong, the idea that prom, it's only as good as the prompts you put in right now, right? Uh, and, and, and you have well, to it's only as, as good as the iterations uh, and corrections that it can make. One of the reasons they're, they're exposing AI to human activity is to take it out of the test lab, which is sort of a sterile kind of environment of known, known scenarios, and put it in the real world where it has to learn from mistakes. Um, but I, I'll disagree that it's. I agree that it's just ultimately it's just a program. Except for this, this couple couple comments, um, that probably would have been more true before uh, DeepMind um, um, showed how a, a, a an AI. Um, rather, there, we had examples of where we were basically trying to teach an AI how to walk or teach an AI how to do a task. But where we actually create deep minds, where we gave the AI, we put it in a, essentially in a room, and we said, "Learn how to do that," and right. they have. That so was their argument. 
that revolves and it involves them rewriting their own code that involves millions of iterations into trying to do that task figuring out what went well what went wrong until they get it right and then once they get it right then they can accelerate through the, the next levels of task after that but um so that is a level of intelligence that we haven't had in the past we had had like when we talked about the 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 program that beat the chess player the ibm program that beat the chess player we essentially programmed in all those moves we watched what all the best people did throughout hundreds of simulations and we basically fed that data into um the program for it to um uh, analyze the scenario and then re and select from that set of programs we've now reached the stage where the um the the um, what and what that's what it's called transformative that's why they call it transformative where it's basically taking those principles and going into different directions to explore new alternatives uh, that we may never have thought about before and coming up with new solutions right that was what Mo's argument was he, he talked about the chess stuff but then he talked about a game that he learned in India as a small boy uh, and I think AB Go something like that uh, it was yeah. a real short but he said they didn't even tell the computer all they told them was uh, learn learn how to play it on your own and basically it did it and did that, and it did in a matter of um, a few hours right yeah and to master level, uh, to yeah. and uh, according, uh, I think Mo said it's got uh, you know so many moves in it. It's it's impossible for any human to get to that mastery. I mean, we just don't have the brain power for it, and it did it in a matter of hours. So so now we're taking that same power and we're applying it to. Um, and we oftentimes like to take these new technologies and apply them to what sort of cool consumer thing could we do, right? But one of the things that my experience with discovering this program and why the AI, the, oh, by the way, um, in 2016, CNN reported how Russia had hacked a cyber toolkit, a CIA cyber toolkit. And in that toolkit was every single one of the functions I had assigned to this quote unquote missing program, including what we now call a deep fake video technology, my ability to take your video uh, image and voice and then replicate you saying and doing something you never said or did. That was part of that toolkit that Russia stole and then sold on the, the dark web. So one of the reasons that, that the FBI was so anxious was that through my own intuitive sense of how would I want my perfect, how would I take existing technologies that I know exist today, push them forward maybe two or three years and figure out how to weaponize them, what would that look like? Um, that there, So if I do that today, we're now really dealing with some very, very scary, very scary realms. Right. So we, we apply the same principles today of what exists and how would a military um, um, espionage, international intrigue, corporate greed, um, you know, disinformation, how would all of that start working in the environment that we have today where everyone's are connected with their phones and the, the power to use a deep fake video in a way that would be imperceptible to 98% of people. Uh, how is that being used? How it's being used by criminals? Uh, how that might be in impact weapon systems in the next generation? That's the stuff that I write about in Swarm, in part because I'm trying to basically get people to think about um, 
what if prophecy is less about God destroying humanity as much how we're going to basically do it to ourselves? Well, that's exactly where I wanted to because if if I have the cover on uh, on the screen right now, I know people on the audio side only can't see this, but you should go to Guy's website and see it, GuyMorrisBooks.com. Uh, now, on the cover, it's pretty obvious that we have some religious <laughs> uh, landmarks there. And the next book also, uh, the, the last arc, suggests... Um, some dealings with um, major religion and, and that impact and the ideas behind that. So the question that this all, for, for people who feel nervous about this, and I'm one of them, uh, artificial intelligence, can it be programmed? I don't know if programmed is the right word because it's not programmed, but can it learn morality and uh, human rally, like what what we think of morality in terms of right and wrong and good and evil and all that kind of stuff. The concept that I present in the books is based on something I actually did myself uh, back in the 90s when I had access to uh, major, I used to build computer models, so I had access to the modeling tools, I had access to databases, I could build my own data. Uh, it was with an oil company, so I had like $100 million of geologic um, and um, data. And the concept was at the time was how would somebody analyze, you know, I, I hear a lot of people who they talk about over in the end times. Uh, sometimes it goes everywhere from the, you know, um, ragged guy with the long beard wearing a, a suit, uh, a sackcloth, holding up the sign, the end is near on the, on the corner of Fifth Avenue, all the way down to the mega preacher who's basically trying to get your donation dollars, dollars because the evil, you know, one side or the other side of the political spectrum is coming after them. And I, I, one, I started looking at it a different way. And it started when I was reading a National Geographic article. And it was an article that dealt with um, uh, the loss of fish stocks in Asia, the United States, Latin America, Europe. And it was really doing more, it was really more of an art, art, uh, uh, environmental study of, of the, um, in the, the environmental impact of man's activities. And I remember reading that article, and, and then something clicked in me. And remember that there was also a prophecy. It's called the Seven Trumpets. Now, that had the allegory that a flaming rock would fall from the sky, and then a third of the fish would see die, third of the birds of the air die, a third of the beasts of the sea die, and two-thirds of the rivers of the uh, earth would be so polluted we couldn't drink from them. And it occurred to me a couple of things. One, I don't recall ever seeing a big flaming rock come down from the sky on the news. So that didn't happen. But that was just the allegory. And I realized that most prophecies have two parts, an allegory and an outcome. What have I, and the allegory is where everybody seems to apply, overlay their biases. And what I was hearing from so many other people were religious biases, cultural biases, geographic biases, uh, sect biases in terms of I'm Protestant, but the, the Pope is the Antichrist. Uh, it's Christians against the Muslims. It's America against the world. All of those kinds of allegorical interpretations come from looking at the allegory piece. And those include biases that I think most people just can't seem to get around. But what if we looked only at the outcomes in the events, such as the fish stock locks. And what if we took, what if we built a probable, a probabilistic model, a computer model, regression model about this to say, what's the probability of this event being said it would happen and this event actually happening across this time frame, uh, and, uh, but only within a X time frame that it had to occur. 
and then go down the list. And you know, for those who don't know, there's over 800 prophecies for the end times, probably close to 90% or 90% of them have been fulfilled. Um, some of them are, are subjective. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that right out there. And those are things that would have a low probability, you know, are, um, it say, oh, yeah, you know, people, it says people will be immoral. Yeah, but we, that's been occurring for, for, for ages, right? So it has to be it, but it's going to rank high. It's going to look closer at those things that are unique to human or geologic or known history. And so I actually spent a weekend, it's three days, loading up the data and then building the basic algorithms and then running several iterations to try and kind of narrow it down. And I ultimately came back after only loading like 15 or 20 of these kinds of things like the the, the birds. Um, and by the way, for those who don't know, there's several books that have already said that we've entered in a sixth extinction. So the birds of the birds of the air and the lands, beasts of the sea and pollution of the rivers have all been well documented by scientific studies. But the ultimate percentage, the, the probability came back one in 1.4 trillion against random chance, which basically said to me, the math says that I could perceive in my head that we live in this really unique time frame in all of history, uh, with our technologies, with our pollution, with our po population, uh, with climate, with uh, so many things. Um, but this gave me a mathematical um, model in which to kind of evaluate are we really in the end times or are we just being paranoid right well and and uh your conclusion I know that was deep, but i hope that made sense yeah no it makes sense but so that number that uh, a statistical number seems uh, like it, it we're in good shape but is that the conclusion that you drew no no it's the other way around it's oh these things are not happening by random chance oh i thought it was that, that i thought the statistical no, it's, it's actually were... the flip of that i basically maybe i phrased it wrong but uh it was actually an incredibly high number and so i i, and I thought well even That's if I, I did something wrong Maybe I, I I inserted my own bias somehow. Even if I'm off by a thousand, that's really a pretty big number, and it got me changed how I looked at the world world events and my career. Uh, it really kind of started having me really think about um, what if it's true. Um, how would I want that to really change who I am and and and, and what what my legacy might be. Boy, oh boy. Uh, well, you know, I wasn't in a, a very optimistic place before this conversation about, all, I mean, about humanity and the world on, on this planet. But I think it just got, it just my optimism even came down a little, even if that was at all possible. <laughs> and this is the reason my wife doesn't let me talk about my work for dinner parties. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but Part of this, because we include the books, include the uh, rise of fascism. Now, I think that the rise of fascism is cannot happen in a bubble. It can't happen unless the populace allows it to happen. I mean, we I think about the dumbing down, not just of America, but of the world, this intentional dumbing down. But I think you, you I, I'm hoping you would agree that these kind of thoughts these are the kind of things that encourage people to say stupid because I'd rather be a happy idiot than to know what you know. <laughs> um, did you ever, have you ever watched the television show Monk? Yeah. My wife oftentimes will watch that show for, for giggles and she'll point at me and she says, you know, and one of the time, oftentimes when he does the thing says it's a blessing and a curse. Um, she, she points at me because my head is always you know, clicking on some level. But 
Yeah, it, it can be, but you know, I, I also try to put things in a positive perspective. Um, I, I tell people, I said, we all have an expiration date. Um, there's no study I've ever seen that that didn't confirm that the death rate was 100%. And so the question is never about how long, but how well. And so if, in fact, there's a mathematical probability that's suggesting that all of the things we're starting to see with politics, economics, digital um, um, digital coins that are basically part of trade, uh, in, uh, international trade, um, wars in, 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 in Ukraine that could get worse. It, will Putin basically um, go in defeat or will he basically do a scorched earth strategy, you know, basically pulling us into something bigger if he thinks he's going to lose anyway? Uh, how will China react? If they re they've already stated that they want Taiwan by 2027. What happens if, if that happens? Um, what could impact how losing Taiwan would impact um, so many of our industries from from aerospace to cars to technology artificial intelligence banking we need those Taiwan ships for our industry so I I, I have I was trained to basically look at large amount of data components and to build models to see patterns and but what I do in my books is trying to keep that part that geeky part kind of in the background and then try to use really fun characters going back to the kind of sarcastic main character and Derek Taylor. Um, I try to use really fun characters to really kind of paint the scenario of what if this happens without necessarily talking about, oh, this could happen, risk, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I get it. But now I just want to touch on because with all these advances in technology and AI and and it it spills over into the medical industry of course you talk about our time being finite i have been saying for a long time my days are finite i'm sure that i'm going to die but i'm not sure that, that somebody who's a gen now whatever gen now is is going <laughs> to die <laughs> um i th i think I know that I've heard, the, I've read a couple of the studies that said that they're working on AI that thinks that they can change the um, the way we age. But right now we're at eight billion, and we've already added a billion population in less than ten years. Right. Uh, we're we're on track target for eleven to twelve billion within a couple of years from now, within two three years. Um, and I could look around the world, and there are some severe. Um, water shortages, there's clean water issues, there's um, um, uh, arable or um, farming, good farming land. We've gotten some areas in the west which are going from now drought to flood. Um, the reefs are basically dying off, which basically is the nurseries for the oceans. So if I look on those trends, I say, yeah, we, we it's, it's possible that now are we really going to, who's going to get the benefits of that aging process? It won't be the average person. No, that it be the elite because they'll want the average people to die off because they they can't give it to everybody because we're just already too crowded. I completely agree with that. I could see just a handful of billion what we see as billionaires now. And what what And let's face it, nobody, nobody, nobody wants an everlasting Elon Musk. 
Right, right. Nobody <laughs> does. That's, that's, all, all of those people who are multi-billionaires, they're the worst human beings on the, uh, you know, as far as character of, of you know, the, the, the person themselves. <laughs> I can't see that the, the robots or artificial intelligent computers, whatever it is, would want to keep them around. <laughs> like, now, the second thing is, is by nature, the testing process to validate what really happens you'd have to test it on somebody and wait a few years because nobody's going to want to take it and then wind up that find out that in three years it starts actually making you age faster. Right. Um, so they, they might even, even if they develop the basic um, biotech technology and they use AI to do it again, AI is not infallible. It's, it's just kind of amazing. And so we might tr get tricked by amazing to basically test the infallible and it might be wrong. Yeah, yeah. So I think the reality of that having a big impact on the, the planet, uh, I think is still a few decades away. Um, but, yeah, but decades, decades is nothing. Either. I mean, when we think about the scope of time and, and, and all, and uh, I hate but to even... Be at a time when we've got a major population boom uh, and then you're going to you're going to see this sort of pressure to get rid of people while others want to basically live longer. Yeah. And what was was and, and this is a whole other conversation, but the population boom. And this is a, because I keep hearing people about talk about how we're, we're having a birth rate shortage and, and population is declining. I, but the population of the earth is growing tremendously. So I'm thinking. What that really means, and this is just my dumb, non-academic uh, inference here, is that the growth is ha happening in third world countries and, and places where uh, birth rates are out of control. But in more uh, industrialized countries in the free world, uh, it, it, even though it's slowing down here, it's growing rapidly in places like India and, Af and all these African countries and stuff like that. Which means we have different types of problems to solve. We have a how do we um, attract uh, and, and build up the best educated people here for the types of industries we'll need in the next century. And our education system isn't geared up for towards that yet. Uh, and two, how do we make sure that we can educate third world so that they understand their own population problem and then reduce that that growth rate uh, over there? Um, and and I think that we've, there's been some successes there, but I think it's ultimately going to be, if you look at test cases, you know, a, a population will grow until basically it runs out of resources to grow. Yeah, right. So now, um, so it that that part um you know it, it's i don't think it's a question of population growth i think that's also tied with um some of the things we've already seen which is like wealth distribution and power distribution you know uh, our government is now after the uh, citizens united is is basically is, is sold off right. and so and which is predictable um probably but a shame that it happened but the reality is it did happen. So those influences are going to affect um, other countries as well. Right. So now, it, go, ahead. go ahead. No, finish your thought, please. Um, you know, the, the reality, reality is that they are going to be able to do some amazing things. The question is, is the cost and the price. It's all, if, it, if it gets baked into something people can get, that will basically shoot up the cost of health insurance, which is already sky high. Because we got, we're not doing it for humanitarian purposes. We're doing it for profit purposes. So all of the AI, and I point this out in Swarm and in The Last Ark, all of this AI has a 
is is not they're not doing it for our benefit they're doing it for our uh, for our money right wow uh we are over an hour and it's more than i, I you know n- normally do i'd like to just keep going just a couple more minutes though because uh it, yeah i don't feel like we covered it or everything i wanted to cover here uh d- is there another book in this series that I'm working on a new one now. The last arc just came out a few months ago. One reviewer said that if Dan Brown and Tom Clancy ever worked on a book together, it would look like the last arc. Um, One of the interesting things that most people will learn in the book is that there are actually two arcs of the covenant that still exist. And uh, one of them was stolen and sold on the black market January 21 after 750 men, women, and children were massacred. The other one we know how to get to because of a copper scroll that was found in the 60s and decoded about six years ago. So um, the, 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 we'll talk about the history of both of those arcs, why they could be used in sort of a peace deal for political theater, um, and, and, and why they, how interesting it is, or again, unprobable that both of them would be basically be on the market at the same time. Yeah, wow. It's it's really surprising stuff for me to learn. When I read that, I was like, "What?" I thought this stuff was all just hooey. <laughs> no, no, it's, it, there's there's a real history behind all of that. The ark that was in Ethiopia, there's hundreds of years of scrolls and history and archaeology and testimonies and paintings of it happening and um it's um but it but most people don't know that it was stolen and sold on the black market. What I do in the last arc is I look at um, who in the region would have enough money, power to basically send a militia to Axum, and why would they want a, an ancient uh, relic of the Jewish people? For what purpose? Right. Um, so all this begs the question now, uh, you sound, it, it, the audience listening to this conversation would assume, as I would, that you're a man of science and not of any kind of spiritual faith or any religion. Uh, the question is, do, are you, do you have any of... Uh, Absolutely. I consider myself a Christian, but I don't consider myself um, um, linked to some of the more religious, um, what I would call extremes and, and doctrines. Um, I because I, I'm very analytical on my own. I do a lot of my own thought process. I come to my own conclusions. Uh, if a religion doesn't act like what the teaches we're supposed to be doing, then there's something false about that. So, uh, but I do consider myself a Christian. But my purpose in the books is not to um, convert. My purpose in the books is to provoke thought. No, my, I appreciate that, and I, I wasn't going to uh, accuse you of having an agenda here. What I, I am interested in is. It's, it's, to be a Christian, you have to believe there is a God or an, uh, a God, and that we have a soul. Yes. Yes, but if I if I even ask, talk scientifically about that, uh, most people don't understand. CERN is right now they're working on a project called the Azimuth Project, and in that project, one of their main goals is to create a mini black hole. Now, people freak out about that, but in certain scales, it's it's very short lived. What they're really trying to do, and one of the motivations behind that, is to try and study the decay of a particle they call the graviton. Now, it's basically gravity, the stuff that makes up gravity. And gravity happens to be one of the weakest forces in the universe. The, uh, your refrigerator magnet has more pull than gravity. And one of the theories behind what they're trying to do is that if they can track the decay of the graviton, they could prove that black holes that were actually connected through our world exist more than the four dimensions. 
dimensions we can see and and and, and see. So there's at least fifth or other dimensions, which is implied in strings theory, but they can actually prove it through this scientific um, particle experiment. And so when we start to think about even the science and the physics of the universe we live in, there's room for us to consider that there might be some, maybe some of the paranormal are all part of this other dimensional kind of element that occasionally bleeds over. So I can't ignore that that's a possibility, nor can I ignore that um, every um, civilization that developed around the world developed some concept of what they believe to be a deity. And, and so I have to kind of look at the sort of those factual foundations without getting caught up in the what I would call the religious dogma or doctrines of, of hate and judgment and it's us against you and all the stuff that the scriptures don't teach. I appreciate that. Uh, my my interest at this point, because I I don't know why this is so interesting to me, but I love wa watching debates between hardcore atheists and um, theists, and generally, they pick on theists who won't make don't have any kind of scientific. We can't talk about CERN like you just did. Can't talk about about things that we can't see or experience or have not been proved as you know in a scientific way they talk about talk about it in superstitious type of language and so the argument always seems to fa favor the atheist beating up on on the theist for being non-scientific because they pick the people with the least scientific knowledge to debate about about the subject i'm i'm a big believer that science and um spiritual teachings are are connected and that one doesn't discount or cancel out the other we just need to understand them in their own perspectives well i have well, said that i said something similar to that for for a long time but i said for forever science and religion were going like this and at some point in the last millennia it seemed to turn around and go more like this and they start to come together in in the kind of discussions that we're having right now. Yeah, if we understand the multi-dimensional aspect of the universe and the world that we live in right here now, um, it, other paranormal activities, including UFOs and other things, sightings from, of, you know, visions of, of the past, people who said they've seen angels, you know, um, uh, all of these things become at least possibilities, and then the religion might be simply a... Uh, a framework similar to similar to an allegory of how do I explain what just happened? Something outside of the physical just happened, but I'm trying to explain it. I'm trying to explain what I saw, and sometimes we get caught up in the um, we get caught up with with words that we don't really have for things that we we've experienced, right. and so that can create confusion. And so, but I I, I firmly believe that it's the probabilities that so many people around the earth would hold on to a sense of faith that we live in more than the dimension that we can perceive um, and we can attach either a scientific or a spiritual um, uh, element to that but the fact that so many people attach a spiritual element to that says that there's there is a spiritual element there and we can debate about what that means and, and how to interpret it Fascinating stuff. I don't want to go any further because I feel like uh, I'm on information. This is the amount of information I can handle in one week until my next show, evening show like this, where I can digest the information I've heard tonight and kind of make make uh, sense of it, uh, which is why I used to have these like seven nights a week, these evening programs with people like you, and I felt like my brain was about to explode. 
I'm sorry. I've, I've been told. I've been accused that people ask me for the time, and I tell them how to build a watch. So my apologies <laughs> if I if I talk to. No, you. no. I this I, this is why I wanted to have this conversation with you. I would appreciate it if uh, when the next book comes out, you will come back and 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 make this one of your stops on the promotional tour and all that stuff. And uh, at least by then, I'll have some more intelligent questions. <laughs> Absolutely, man. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and I would love to come back. My, uh, my too, and, and thank you for being here. I just want to mention GuyMorrisBooks.com one more time. You go there. Uh, the arc, uh, the last arc is the uh, the most recent book, but I think you got to start with with uh, the Swarm, right? Or do you not? Have if you really, I think Swarm is a great place to start. Not only is it an award winning book, but uh, you'll get introduced to all the main characters that carry through to the last arc and how the story progresses. And now, just quickly before I, I let you go here, uh, do you do something with other, like an author's podcast or uh, some kind of support for other authors? I thought I saw. I, I formed a group called the Author Event Network, and the purpose of the AEN is to get authors, um, give authors an opportunity to have a presence at major festivals, events, and fairs. And every major city has these. There's, you know, the, the Strawberry Festival, the Art Festival, the this summer fest, that summer fest, and there's dozens of them every year. And they can get crowds, as many as a few thousand up to over 100,000 people. We were at an event last year, or last weekend, that got 250,000 people. And so we, we basically um, um, uh, apply for the booth as an organization. We're actually a legal association nonprofit. And so we'll, and we'll bring in uh, multiple authors into the, the booth. They might say that I only want to be there for the morning. Mm -hmm. They might say I want to be beginning to end. They might say I can only come one afternoon. And so every morning, every afternoon, every day, there's a slight change in the mix of authors. Um, and that creates an opportunity for readers to find more of the content they want. And authors get a chance to go out and engage the readers, talk about their books, build their readership, uh, and sell at optimum um, uh, royalties. Very cool stuff. Well, thank and you. We for will actually be at an event every single weekend between now and early October with a half a dozen and four or five different holiday events. And all that stuff, so, uh, the information is all available at crimearsbooks.com? Um, go to, for the Author Event Network, go to authoreventnetwork.com. I'll put that link in the description as well. Uh, Guy, thank you for a very, uh, very great conversation that will have me thinking for a long time. Uh, appreciate it and have a great night and thanks for coming in. Bye for now. Take care. Bye. Guy Morris, folks. Wow. That's why I said, wow. Uh, a lot to think about there. Love to hear your thoughts and comments. Uh, wow. That's all I can say. I'm, when I'm saying wow a lot, you know, I, I'm, I'm impressed. But I'm also a little overwhelmed with uh, that amount of knowledge. And my takeaway is um, I do think w what I'm experiencing from, from that, that this overwhelm of uh, knowledge overload has a lot to do with why we are becoming more dependent on other people thinking for us uh, and the lack of independent thought. You know, it's so much easier to just sit back and let some media head tell you what to make of things than to actually think about these things for yourself and that's why these books are really cool uh they get people thinking and you know what if, if we talk about the uh rise of fascism in the world 
I think it only happens. It doesn't happen in a bubble. It only happens if we let it happen by just ignoring it or not learning enough to to deal with it and, and confront it. And so, you know, that's my take on it. Love to hear your uh, thoughts on it. Uh, that's the show for tonight. Tomorrow, uh, write to me at info mindog TV. By, by the way, uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, I can't even think of his name now. Uh, Rob White. I was going to say Ray White, a uh, com- local comedian who is now everywhere. We'll be on we, on Coffee with the Dog with uh, uh, Dave. Um, man, I'm I'm drawing a blank here. I haven't seen your moments. Dave, the other comedian who's supposed to be on at ten o'clock, has a medical emergency. Some some deafness. Uh, going on and won't be on the show tomorrow. So it'll just be me and Rob in the one o'clock in the nine o'clock first hour, the first hour of the show. Man, I'm I'm really losing it here after an hour. I'm like falling apart. Um, so join me then. And then Friday, my guest is also canceled. Stephen Relaford was supposed to be the the guest. Some issues with getting up early enough, and so I'm going to be doing a music show on on Twitch. Um, just me and the acoustic guitar doing some, uh, I'll do some original music, some covers. I might even go into a little bit of songwriting process and, and talk about that kind of stuff. But it should be an interesting, different kind of show without a guest. That's the show for tonight. Thanks for coming. Don't forget to, um, oh, turn on your radio.
me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.